Our topic today is work and the workplace. And I think probably most people would agree this is an important topic. This is the majority of how we spend our time. If you're working 40 hours in a weekend, most people are working way more than that, then this is about a third of your waking hours. And there are all kinds of messages that we get uh, when we think about work. We tell people, we tell students, make sure you find something you love, but make sure it pays the bills. Uh, Make sure uh, you have meaningful work, but it better have flexibility around your work-life balance. Um, We talk about joining companies, but that actually uh, the most people leave bosses. In the literature, the most determinative factor in employee satisfaction is their immediate supervisor. No pressure for those of us supervising people, right? So with all these messages, does the Bible have anything to say to us about this area of our lives? We're in a series in the book of Ephesians called Whole and Holy, where we're looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches, Ephesus, yes, but other churches as well, on what it means to be the church and how what God really wants for us is to grow up, to mature in Christ-likeness. We're to look like Jesus. And it turns out this is not only good press for God when we do this, it's not only holy, it's good for us. It allows us to flourish as we were intended to be whole beings. Now, frankly, it would be much, much easier if uh, growing up in Christ meant we could just walk into the room, close the door with our little Bibles and emerge all spiritually mature, not have to deal with all this stuff of life, but that's not how it works. Growing up in Christ, unfortunately, is a group project. It requires relationships around us to practice growing in love and grace. We can't love abstractly. It only gets lived out in the day-to-day of washing dishes, doing laundry, answering people's questions, raking leaves, preparing meals, responding to that annoying email, and exerting effort when you're tired. And so Paul spends several chapters on how we're to live together as a community of Christ followers first, and then as a household, which in the first century, uh, when this was written, included family members, yes, but also masters and slaves who were working together to accomplish what the household needed to survive. And frankly, if there were ever two places where it's really hard to live out our faith, it's in the home and in our workplaces. Can I get an amen? Now, as I've been thinking about this message and praying for you this week, uh, I'm very aware there are many different issues that arise uh, when we mention the topic of work. First of all, there's financial pressure. Uh, Work is supposed to provide a living. And uh, so questions of finances arise when we think about this topic. Uh, There's the issue of unemployment uh, or the fear of imminent unemployment. There's uh, underemployment, where you're, you're glad for the job, but seeing its meaning is not so much, and it's hard to stay engaged. Quiet quitting is a real issue in many workplaces today. Some are dealing with just stage of life issue where you've uh, been trained and educated and are excited about a career, but because of family decisions, either supporting a spouse, raising children, you're pausing or stopping out for a time and that's hard. Um, Some of you have a dream job. You're really excited, and it's it's wonderful to be in that place, and probably also it's pretty stressful, and so there's some work-life balance stuff there. Uh, And some of you had a great run, 
job-wise, and now you're retired, and you're finding your way in what God's call on your life looks like. How do you give your time to God and work for him in, in a voluntary capacity when there aren't the traditional accolades of a paycheck or people um, recognizing your work? Some of you here, too, are students, and so your work is learning. How, what does it mean to be whole and holy in your school? So I'm not promising to answer all of your questions on those issues in the next few minutes. Our passage is only five verses long, after all. But I will say, as I've wrestled with this, I think the message today does impact how we think about many of those issues. Because while Paul addresses each person in the working relationship separately, the lower person, slaves first, and then the person in higher position, masters, he actually has the same message for them, and by extension, for us today. And I think that message has the potential to transform our workplaces into whole and holy places, places that are not only more enjoyable to be in, but places in which God himself is honored and revealed. Now, before we look at the passage today, I want to say a brief word about slavery. Because the word appears in the passage, it's really hard for us not to think about our nation's own dark history with slavery, which wasn't evil, whose legacy continues to infect our culture, even the church to this day. It's really hard for some people, maybe some of you here, who are still checking out the Christian faith or maybe re-engaging with a childhood faith, because it may appear from this passage that the Bible is actually supportive of slavery, but that is not the case. It's true the passage we're looking at doesn't demand slaves to be set free, although I hope that by the end of our time, you see it is actually dismantling the main tenets of slavery. But it does push against the practice as much as possible within the limitations Paul was working with. Let me try to explain briefly. For starters, about a third of the population in Rome were slaves in the first century. Slavery, while not based on race, like our history, was woven into the fabric of society, economically, practically, Frankly, no one in the first century was uh, thinking about dismantling slavery. It was such a part of the system. And Christians at the time were a really small fraction of society. They would not have had enough power to overhaul the Roman legislation system. Furthermore, this small fraction of people was beginning to have accusations made against them that they were disruptors of the peace, upsetting the culture uh, of their day because of their stance on many issues. And frankly, they were. They had become so captivated and taken by the person of Jesus. He had become their master in everything, and so everything was subservient to him. So if they wanted their message of Jesus saving life to spread and gain, gain traction, they had to be a bit savvy about how they did that. They couldn't risk being totally discredited and losing what little influence they had. So Paul is walking a thin line here, trying to remove any accusation that this newfound Christian faith is upsetting the cultural order. So in the letter, he addresses the normal household culture of the time, wives and husbands, children and parents. We dealt with those the last two weeks. And now, slaves and masters, so he can check the box. We're, we're not upsetting the order. But subversively, he rejects this way of thinking and behaving, and he proposes an alternative way. And it isn't apparent to us, but there would have been a deafening silence whenever this section was read aloud in the church, which is how the people first heard it. 
People would have been shocked to hear Paul put slaves on the same level equal to their masters. And telling the master to no longer dominate or rule or threaten the slave, but instead protect them, was essentially the same thing as him telling them to let them go. It's kind of like keeping the legal status of slaves, but telling them to treat them not as slaves. So in fact, if you read this closely, you will see Paul's dismantling slavery from within. He's undermining the very belief system that slavery is rooted in, that, so, that slaves are lesser human beings than others. The entire notion of slavery is built on that presupposition. Property, owner, or owner, relationship of proprietor and property. One is ruling over the other. But as we're gonna see today, Paul obliterates that distinction between slave and master, replacing it instead of proprietor property with the relationship of brother and sister, equal in equal human beings under the same master, Jesus Christ. And the moment you replace brotherhood with an institution that's separated as proprietor property, you have abolished slavery. It's only a matter of time. It's going to undercut the belief system. And indeed, that's eventually what happened. Though, of course, that took longer than any of us would have liked to say. So with that aside, I just feel like that could be a distraction or a frustration for you if you're new to reading the Bible. So with that aside, hear now the word of the Lord from Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, and let's see what we can learn about how we might nurture whole and holy workplaces. And remember, this entire section um, began in chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands and wives in this way, parents and children this way, now slaves and masters in this way. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know the Lord will reward each person for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, you treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So I see one main point of this passage that then has three implications for us. What is this main point? To both the slave and the master, Paul has this startling reframe. You are slaves of Christ. You slaves... <laughs> You think you belong to the slave owner and you're his property, but in actual fact, you're a slave of Christ. You belong to him. He has total say over you. And masters, you think you own the slaves and you're the master, small m? In actual fact, you have a master, capital M, and you must submit to him. You belong to him. Paul is saying to people who represent both high and low status, regardless of your position, your title, your authority in society, you have a master. Now, I understand this is not a difficult concept for you to get, but I want you to see where it is in the text. So to the slave, verses five to eight, Paul repositions this subordinate person, not to their master, the slave owner, but 
their master, the Lord Jesus, whom they've chosen. Look at this, verse five. Just as you would obey Christ. Verse six, as slaves of Christ. Verse seven, as if you were serving the Lord. That's Christ. Verse eight, the Lord or Christ will reward them. In other words, yes, it's abundantly clear to you and to people around you that you have a master who you have to seek to obey. But now that you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, let's be clear, you have a master whom you are also seeking to please and whom you are to obey. And he is Lord and master over everything for you. Now, while that's good news for the slave, that's perhaps more astonishing to the master in the first century. Verse nine, for in verse nine, he's gonna reposition that superordinate person too, the person with the higher position, and he levels the playing field. And it's interesting because he says to them too, guess what? You have a master. You're subject to a greater authority. Verse nine, who is both their master and yours, who is in heaven. And that master doesn't play favorites. He doesn't work by the same broken, corrupt system of our society. Now, Paul drives this point home further with a word play in Greek. It's still evident in the English translation, but look at this. Every time you see the word master or Lord in that passage, it's the same word in Greek. It can mean your slave owner, uh, but it can also mean a deity, a Lord. This was used of uh, Lord's Emperor uh, Caesar, Lord Jesus Christ. So now look at this passage. Slaves, you have a master, small m, but you have a master, big M. Master, you think you're a master, small m, but actually you have a master, capital M. Paul makes this more explicit. Verse five, you can see this. Obey your earthly master, and verse nine, since you have a heavenly master. So same message applies to both. You have a master regardless of your position, title, authority. They say preaching the disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. Uh, so I think this is uh, comforting the disturbed in the slaves, right? But the word to the masters is kind of disturbing the comfortable. I think this has three implications for how we're to live. First, the first implication of you have a master is all workers have value and dignity. Our understanding of our true master transforms how we see one another in the workplace. Now, our Western culture has a pretty clear hierarchy of who matters, right? So in a firm, there are partners and there are paralegals. In a hospital, there are surgeons and there are the aides who clean patient rooms. And this is evident from our paychecks, from who gets invited to the social outings, who gets the memo, who gets a seat at the table, and who gets the cubicle and the corner office. Hierarchy and pecking order rule. Now notice, Paul is not advocating for us to throw away the entire structure. Everybody gets paid the same, no matter what the jobs are. We need some order and organization for how we do our work and what the clear lines of authority are. But he is pushing back against the belief that often goes with those distinctions. He is saying, don't be deceived. Don't begin to think that these necessary hierarchies in your work responsibilities actually dictate something about the value of the lives of the people who are serving in those roles. Every person matters. No one person in authority can claim they have more value over another. Treat one another as human beings, not 
just as their role or function in the organization. Now, if you're someone with less authority in your workplace, this should be comforting. Your value to your master, your true master, is not based on your paycheck or your title or what other people communicate to you about what your value is by how they look at you. We are more than what we do. <laughs> the explorers are studying Sabbath uh, in Sunday morning communities, and Sabbath is a way of remembering we are more than what we do. I picture that early church in Ephesus, which had slave owners sitting beside slaves next to one another in worship. Now, in this room, we represent different socioeconomic backgrounds. We have people who are barely scraping by financially and people who enjoy six-figure salaries. We have people on the lower end of hierarchy and the higher end of hierarchy of what the world would say is um, important. We have people who need the scholarship to attend the student retreat. And we have other people who can spare money to, to give for them. And may that always be the case, friends. Because if it isn't, we are just another club of people getting together with one another like us. Our diversity socioeconomically is evidence that the gospel is at work in our midst, and I rejoice in that. So if you do not have a lot of money, don't you dare come in here sheepish, tail between your legs, like you don't have much to offer. Regardless of your position, you have a master. And regardless of your title, position, or pay in this community, you are a brother and sister in Christ, and God has no favorite children. And I'm going to tell you, this is one reason I love our financial controls around giving. Because over the years, especially when I've worked with people in Alpha who are uh, examining Christian faith, I have heard some horror stories of churches um, about how they share giving records. One church, uh, someone told me their church years ago, even published how much people gave from top to bottom, and you could see it in how people sat in the pews. <laughs> We maintain strict confidentiality here around who gives. Why? So that we pastors can treat everyone the same. It's a way of pushing against this culture this, that status should equal power. You don't get special treat from, from us if you give more as pastors because we don't know what you give. And I love that. In Jesus' community, money shouldn't let you have sway influence over those who don't have as much. And if that's upsetting to you, I'm sorry, that's our reality. Now, to those of us with more authority in our workplaces, this should be a caution and a sober reminder. When is the last time you or I looked at a janitor or a cafeteria worker or a bus driver or the grocery person stocking our shelves and said, thank you? genuinely, or looked them in the eye, or engaged in some other humanizing action. A whole and holy employee and workplace will honor the people in all positions of the organization, even if we have to set responsibilities and salaries accordingly. So all workers have value and dignity. Second implication of you have a master is that all work can be God's work. Now, technically, I can conceive of some work that would be incompatible with God's work. So let's say 
almost all work can be God's work. Uh, I'll let you think about that. But see, uh, let's see how Paul instructs the servants specifically to work. Verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord, not people. Paul says a similar statement in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know you'll receive an inheritance as your reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That is a great verse to, to memorize. Now, even if you haven't spent much time in a church, you've probably heard of the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. It's a good rule. But Paul's words here actually raise the bar even more. Rather than working to please our neighbor, who are we working to please? We are working to please God. We work as if Jesus were the one we were serving. This is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 25, 40, when he says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. And interestingly, that list he gives is all about what we would call menial work. Giving someone food, giving them a drink, giving them clothes, visiting them, caring for the sick. Those of you with young children at home, you're doing the real work. <laughs> and this idea that when we serve or work, we're serving Jesus has the power to transform all work into meaningful work. Now, all work, as I've said, can be done to, as God's work, but the church, frankly, has not been very good at always recognizing this. Sometimes churches um, differentiate between ministry and secular work. The Bible doesn't make that distinction at all. Instead, it holds the view that all that we do can be offered to God for his good in this world he loves. Building roads, overseeing financials or even call centers, serving as a food scientist at Target, graphic design, exercise coach, transporting goods, not just the areas we tend to think about as ones that could be doing God's work like education, healthcare, or uh, social work. I had a professor years ago who made a very bold statement that has always stuck with me. If God calls you to be a truck driver, don't stoop to being a missionary. Meaning, do the work God's called you to do. We need people in every sector of society. Every area has meaning and value. Now, it isn't just the work that has value. It's the way we work. We're to work with diligence and faithfulness, not to impress the boss, not to, but to honor our Lord. Verse 5 says, uh, Paul says, sincerity of heart. And then in the next verse, he elaborates on that with two phrases, not to win their favor or when their eye is on you. Actually, it's literally eye service. That's a great phrase. We all know what it's like to work with people who are just annoyingly only hard workers when the boss is around. I remember being at a car dealership years ago in Durham, uh, and the car dealership was called Mark Jacobson Toyota. And I mentioned something about that to the sales agent, and he said, oh yeah, he's the boss man you know when he's in the building, everybody stands up a little taller and sits a little straighter. It's like, okay. Is he in the building now? Because I really like this to go well. But Paul urges here, do strong work, not for a reward, not for someone to pat you on the back, not for a raise, not for a shout out, but because the master, the true master, is watching and you're doing it for him. Oh, friends, this is so countercultural. We want recognition we want to be noticed and seen and praised and appreciated for what we do. 
This incidentally is why secrecy is going for the jugular and spiritual formation. You do something good and you don't tell anyone about it. See if you can do that for a week. Uh, it, it cuts away at the pride. But as a follower of Jesus, taking seriously, growing up in his likeness in every way, we will not be motivated only by those external realities. Now, I know it's easy. I have been there to become resentful or passive or uncooperative when we're underemployed or just restless in a, in a workplace. But that's where serving our master, capital M, impacts serving our master, small m. Our service is rendered not only as if it were to Christ, but actually to Christ, for it is him we are serving, and he will reward us. I'm not going to name names here, but I want to say I have been very encouraged by many of you in this season who are volunteering and stepping up more for the church, often in very unseen ways. Actually, you think it's unseen, but I live a block away, so I'm driving by here all the time. So I see you. I see you watering the grass so the uh, grass doesn't die in the summer. I see you shoveling the snow so people don't slip on Sunday morning. I see you fixing a project at church, uh, putting a, a new light bulb in or photocopying a lesson for city kids. And sometimes I want to send you a text and say, thank you for serving, or like send you a photo of me seeing you do the work, but I feel like that'd be too creepy and I don't want to creep you out. <laughs> but the truth is, I only see a fraction. The Lord, the real master, yours and mine, he sees all. He doesn't miss a thing. And he will reward people for their work. Now that's for the unseen person. What about those of you who have influential roles? And many of you actually have pretty influential roles in your company. If all work can be God's work, how might you seek to use your power for the good of others? I think of a VP of a huge Fortune 500 company who was responsible for an entire continent transporting food for his company. And he asked God how God might use him. And over the years he was with that company, oh my, did God use him. On one occasion alone, he found a way to transport thousands of pounds of fresh meat from a trade show that was gonna be wasted into the mouths of children at an orphanage who were literally praying for God to send them meat. The workers at the orphanage called it the meat miracle. Friends, God can use you whether you're a VP or a volunteer. Why not ask him how? Third and final application I wanna make of you have a master theme is that we all work for God. Regardless of where we fall on the company org chart, regardless of your title or position, we're ultimately accountable to God. We answer to him. He's the unseen master of all. Verse nine, Paul is just leveling it here. Treat your slaves in the same way you wanna be treated since you know he is both their master and yours. Now for some, this might raise issues of integrity in your workplace. There may be times when we cannot support what is happening because it's immoral or it causes harm to people. We're ultimately accountable to God, not our supervisor. Maybe your greatest act of trust and discipleship is leaving your company because of wide-scale corruption you're being asked to participate in. 
I think of a VP of a high-profile company many years ago who lost his job because he would not go along with the cover-up scheme of his company that they wanted him to participate in. He was told he had evidence and knew what was happening. He was told he needed to lie to cover up financial corruption at the highest levels. And he, along with his wife, made the decision he could not do that. And he lost his job. But his real master was faithful to him. Alternatively, the mindset of I work for God may at times mean we stay and ride it out and seek to bring change in a culture that is woefully missing the mark. And we may be misunderstood and maligned in that. But our response is, I am accountable to God first and foremost. If you're struggling with a decision like that today, I want to encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit to give you guidance and direction. He is the counselor and guide after all, and he's really good at his job. You can invite others into that conversation, people who know you or respect. I hope, that's what we're here for. I hope these are the kinds of conversations happening in the lobby, in communities, in small groups, because we all need help with this. City Church, the word today is pretty clear. We have a master. Regardless of our position, our title, our authority, we are all subservient to our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And that truth is to impact how we see one another equally in the workplace and how we see all our work as God's work and how we see ourselves as ultimately accountable to God alone, not simply our direct supervisor. This should be sobering for us. It should impact how we think about the work that we do, how we treat those in the organization with us, how we handle lack of recognition. Because we all have a master. And if he is truly Lord of anything, he must be Lord of everything, including our work. May it be so among us. Not only so we have a great place to work, <laughs> but so that others may ask, just who is it we work for? And that one day we may hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. I'm asking you now, Holy Spirit, <laughs> translate these words to the ears of these dear people who are seeking you, who want to honor you. Do more than we could ask or imagine. Give people like creative ideas of how they can be your hands and feet in the workplace. Give praise and honor to the one feeling underappreciated. Give direction to the one who needs it now. We want to be people who live our lives as unto you, even in work. May it be so. For our joy, for this is a good way to live, and for your glory, that your name would be proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.